I was thinking this week that of all the decisions I made over the many years, the bringing in of Doug and Colleen were two of the best decisions. And uh, yes. Serving together has been a great joy. Colleen never ceases to amaze me. For Lent, she chose Habakkuk. <laughs> I don't think in 40 years I ever even preached on Habakkuk. So I had to do a lot of study to prepare for this day. But obviously, long ago when she prepared this Lenten series, she didn't know what was going to be happening in our world. But God knew. And God knew we need to talk about some hard things, things that we don't often talk about, things of trying to understand why God does what he does or doesn't do what he doesn't do. And how does all of his story work together in that? Now, I don't know what you did over these months of pandemic, but Cheryl and I conquered Netflix. <laughs> and so I tend to think in terms of episodes and things that are happening within the life of a, <laughs> of a book. And Pastor Colleen, she did, of course, season one over the last two weeks. She did episode one and episode two as she began to look at these complaints of this prophet. I get to start season two, episode one. And uh, Pastor Helen will, of course, next week do the episode two of this, and then Pastor Colleen will return to end the series. So we just need to do a little recap, right? It's the declining years in the empire. What was Israel, Judah, is now Judah. Habakkuk, unlike most prophets who tend to attack or address the king and the people and what they're doing wrong, Habakkuk, unlike the other prophets, turns to God and says, what's the deal? Why are you allowing this? What's going on? He's asking that age-old question, is God good? And if he is good, then why does he tolerate so much evil? Now, he doesn't talk about this in general terms, but very specifically. He explains that God's own people, these ones to whom he gave the Torah, the Bible, the written truth about life and how we can live long and prosper, the Torah, the Bible, was being ignored in the nation. People were not worshiping the living God, and instead they were acting as though there is no God. They choose violence and injustice to get ahead in life. Even the leaders were using their positions for personal gain. Politicians getting rich. And in the second episode of season one, God answers that complaint that Habakkuk brings to him. But his answer, as we saw last week from Pastor Colleen, only confuses Habakkuk all the more. God says he's going to hold his people accountable by using this massive military machinery of the Babylonians. The Babylonians, who are arguably the worst nation in all of human history on human rights. 
By historical archaeological account, the entire nation of Babylon was saturated with sex and violence. Human trafficking of young women was a major product of their culture. Now at this point, we definitely end season one with this cliffhanger. Our question about God's goodness seems to be answered in a horribly negative way. We're left not only questioning God's goodness, but his methods of how he's weaving together his story. So that's where we are today. We begin with season two. Habakkuk expresses for all of us kind of what we feel at the end of the cliffhanger of season one. What? How can God possibly side with people who are worse than us? People who worship military might. People who treat human beings as animals, as fish. People who go through the land devouring anyone and anything in their path because of their own selfish ambition. Indiscriminately murder the non-combatants. It is there in the story now that we're going to join this lament of Habakkuk. We're going to complain to God about what is happening then and now. Second season, first episode, verse 12. Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God and my Holy One, you will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? You have made people like the fish in the sea, like the sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them up in his dragnet. And so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet. For by his net he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest of foods. Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? I will stand at my watch, station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. Let us pray. Father, we recognize that in all of life, from the individual experiences 
to these corporate international experiences. We are in need of your guidance, of your salvation, of your wisdom. We would ask that each one of us who've come this day with our own individual walks, our own individual questions, that we would hear from you and be challenged by you to be your people in this day. And of course, we'll give you the praise for you alone are worthy of any praise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, those of you who know me can imagine that as I read this text today, how it describes a nation that captures human beings in their nets and devours nations and worlds before it, that I could not, as a Trekkie, think of anything but the Borg. For those of you unfortunate enough to not be Trekkies, the Borg is this collective of assimilated humanoid beings from all over the galaxies. They are cyborgs who have united together in one intention and that intention is to devour anything in its path. It is so powerful that when it comes upon a new world, a new galaxy, the collective simply says to them, we are Borg. You will be assimilated. We will add your biological and technological distinctiveness to our own. Resistance is futile. The Borg, thankfully, are fictional. The Babylonians, however, are not, nor are the Russians. Yet they say the same thing to the nations around them. Resistance is futile. You will be assimilated. We will take your biological and technological and add it to our own. Thus, in ancient Babylon, when they came and conquered Jerusalem, they took the Jewish women and children as their own. They took their biology home and became wives and families. The best of the best of the children were taken into leadership training, assuming top positions within the Babylonian Empire. And thus we have the accounts of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. But what's interesting about the Babylonian captivity and interesting about the way God works within the world is that assimilation works both ways. As Babylon consumed the Jewish people with their beliefs and their writings, we then have the Old Testament prophecies coming in to the kingdom of Babylon where the Magi, the wise men, are now studying about a king that is to be born and to rule forever. Eventually, we even have the story of Nehemiah with the blessing of the Persian kings who assimilated the Babylonian kings. And now you have this Nehemiah rising to importance within the land 
and given the instruction to go back to Jerusalem, this city of world-renowned importance, and to rebuild the walls. And so Hezekiah comes home, and Jerusalem is restored by the time of Jesus. Now I explain all of that not to be a spoiler. I hope all of that was knowledge to you as you've studied scripture and understand what God has been doing for thousands of years within our world. But I tell you the story because it helps us understand how bad people can be transformed by their aggressive assimilation and become a part of the purpose and story of God. God's story, his story, history, is not a short one. Our songs today sang of that. It's not a simple one with good people wearing white hats and we know who they are. The story of God's people includes the reality that each of us have a line drawn down the center of our hearts, dividing evil and good. Never within scripture do we ever see the Israelites as being presented as always good. They're the good guys. They're God's people. Conversely, scripture recognizes that even in the most evil of people, there is a connection with God, a desire to be good. The account of Jonah's reluctant preaching to Nineveh and Nineveh's enthusiastic repentance demonstrates that. Now, all of this, of course, goes back to Genesis 1. We are informed at the very beginning so that we have no misunderstanding of what this story of God is all about, that we are all created in the image of God. Every human being of every group, tribe, language, and nation will be before the throne. Every human being who lives, has ever lived, and ever will live, is created in the image of God, male and female. Now that truth, that we, every human being, is capable of eternal decisions of infinite good and infinite evil and all the shades in between is what his story is all about. God's story is telling us that in all things, all things, the Greek there is very clear, no exceptions, all things will work together for the good of those who love God and who live according to his purpose. Whether the Babylonians conquer Jerusalem or the Russians assimilate Ukraine, whether we have momentary temporal victories or temporary human setbacks, all things work together for the good of those who love God and live according to his purpose. Now, up to this point, we've been doing a, a theology and a history lesson. But that's not why God inspired Habakkuk. It's not why we include that book and this prophet within our scriptures to teach us. History and theology is, of course, very important. 
But why God is at work is that in the final analysis, he's not interested in making scholars so much as in developing each individual into a mature, faithful, wise, loving person who, as we live according to the purposes of God, at least for a few more years in a fallen world, we can become what he created us eternally to be. So I want to just notice a few things with you and bring it home to each of us individually. The first lesson that we learn from the history that Habakkuk has brought for us today is we have to, as human beings, stop dividing into factions and then judging and attacking others. There's no doubt that our sinful proclivity to create coalitions that then war against one another is the very central lesson of Habakkuk and of history itself. But it isn't only a problem of political parties, national boundaries, or coalition forces. It's a problem in my heart. It's a problem in yours. As humans, we can divide over almost anything. If even churches can divide over whether to wear a mask or not, then how can we find our way in this far more substantive geopolitical, economic, and cultural battle that surrounds us? Paul reminds us that we need to live up to his call and his love with humility and patience, making every effort to guard the unity that the Spirit provides. As our lives are bound together in peace, not divided and looking down on others, then all things are guarded. If even our own nation does not guard our unity within itself, love for every other American, whatever their differences, then how can we guard the unity of a world divided into warring factions and nationalistic pride rather than unity of all humanity as God designed? So I want us just to take a moment. A sermon is not a history lesson. It's a moment of change. So close your eyes. Let's ask God, am I being divisive? Am I being divisive? What do I need to do to guard the unity of our church, of our family, of our nation, of our world? How can I humbly love those who are different or not of my own camp? How can I stop judging? The second lesson 
of this history study of Habakkuk is that people worship the systems that give them wealth. We worship the systems that give us wealth. The hooks and nets and dragnets that are used in our economic system to give luxury to some and poverty to others, they're not anomalies of a, of a modern capitalistic or even socialistic economic system. It's the ancient way of the human heart. It's the way human beings are fallen. The privilege provided to some at the expense of others is not a modern invention that modern sensitivities or modern political change or modern, modern legal uh, machinations can overcome. It's a question of worship. You get back to the very central core of what it means to be a human being. We may not, in modern culture, go to the temple of Baal with our bull and offer it so we can have a bull market in our culture. We may not go to the sanctuary and burn incense to our privilege and the privileged dragnet of which we're a part. But we have our ways of putting more worth and more worship into the systems that bring us wealth and fine food than we do in giving worth to every person everywhere the true fullness of righteousness, as it's described within scripture, is when every person is treated rightly, justly, with the love of God into their lives. Years ago, I had a good friend who came to me because their economic dragnet had now brought them a large home. And she was concerned what that would do to her own spiritual commitment and responsibilities. And what I said to her then, and I say now, it's different from what some might say, is that large homes and economic privilege are the opportunities God gives us to care for others. It is not by the giving of them up. We are to open our homes to God and his work. We are to give generously to the poor who have no nets. We are to open our hearts and give worth to the human beings who are worthy of a living wage, using whatever influence and advantage we individually and corporately have to help the powerless and the disadvantaged. Sacrifice is a part of the Christian life, but not sacrifice to the worship of a system so that we can gain more for ourselves but sacrifice so that we can provide more to others out of the place we have of opportunity to give. I have, and I'm always amazed at it when we talk about missions every year. I've always been amazed at how we as a congregation give so much of the opportunity God has given to us and how it multiplies throughout the world for the poor and the, and the unfortunate. There's so much more we can do. So much more we can do. So we use our place in the world for God and others. That is how we live out the love of God and love of others. It has to have those actions to it in order to be a complete reality. And then finally, the third. 
We stand and watch for God to work his justice and righteousness. The truth is, as we see, now looking back on what happened to Israel and Babylon over the years and how it brought back a change in the whole Eastern world, Mid-Eastern world, the truth is that God has been and always will be about the work of bringing about his story to a completion, of bringing justice and righteousness into his world, of, a, of his kingdom come into this world. But if we are standing with him, watching for his hand at work, then we are ready to give an eyewitness account to the world of who God is and what he's doing today in this place through you and through me. I cannot even begin to imagine what the Israelites went through when the Babylonians attacked, but I see a daily what it looks like as the Russians are assimilating the wealth and the natural resources and the human lives of the Ukrainians. But for both ancient Israel and the Ukraine, and for you and for me, if we listen to Habakkuk's complaint, we will realize that our own injustice in our own lives is a part of the whole story. Habakkuk says it so clearly. We worship and sacrifice to the fragrance of systems that benefit the few at the expense of the most. But as Christians, we stand and watch and understand and answer that God is at work in his story. And because we're part of the problem, we are part of the solution. We guard the unity. We give worth to every human being. We stand with God and watching how he's accomplishing his will on earth. And we participate in that quite literally every day in every both cultural and economic and religious and personal decision that we make. So again, let's take a moment and let's ask ourselves, am I worshiping the net that gives me privilege at the expense of others? Am I sitting at sumptuous tables rather than standing for justice? Does my vantage point allow me to see God at work as he brings everything together for good through you, through me, through his people at work throughout the world? There is great hope in the day in which we live, not because we trust that somehow these human beings that have so messed up things are going to work it all out through some kind of uh, political, military, diplomatic plan. But there's great hope because we're in his story and he is at work. And the question each one of us want to spend time with today, this week, am I a part of that solution? Let's spend time in prayer. Thank you for listening. 
If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.